Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Steve Hackett, the former lead guitarist of Genesis, rocks Warner Theater in Washington, D.C. on April 13th. I spoke with Hackett about his 70s work in Genesis, from Peter Gabriel asking him to join the band to Phil Collins taking over as frontman, as well as Hackett's eventual decision to go solo. Steve Hackett, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, former lead guitarist of Genesis. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. Nice to talk to you. Now we're talking because you're going to be coming to the Warner Theater here in D.C. on April 13th, and we're, you're calling it the Seconds Out Plus More Tour. Uh, what do we got? Are, are you pl- you're playing a full Genesis live album, right? That's right. Yeah, I'm doing that whole album. It's 90 minutes long. I'm doing solo stuff as well, a, a set of solo stuff before it. So it ends up being about three hours long. Of course, there's a there's a break in the middle, 15, 20 minutes for people to powder their nose and uh, get hammered at the bar and all the <laughs> things that people do at, at live gigs. And then and then they're in, in the right frame of mind and the right condition to sing along with the Genesis stuff and stop along with all that. <laughs> all right. So before they get hammered at the bar and before they powder their nose, they hear all of your great solo stuff, including your latest album, Surrender of Silence. Are you going to do anything from that? Yeah, we do a couple of things from Surrender of Silence and things from Spectral Mornings and one or two others. So uh, uh, it's about 30 or 40 minutes of, of that. Then then we put on the Genesis hat and we do we do the whole of, of, of uh, uh, um, uh, Seconds Out, you know, which includes Supper's Ready and um, Cinema Show and Firth the Fifth. Lots of great tunes from the uh, from the 70s, basically. Great, great. Well, I would love to get into all of that, but uh, just so our listeners know, remind them, I, I want to know, take me back to the beginning. I know you're born in London in what, 1950. How, how did you yes. get in? How did you get into music as a kid? What, did I read you? You were into classical and opera and that kind of stuff? Well, you know, the truth was my dad played a lot of instruments. And um, from the age of two, I was desperately trying to play uh, the harmonica. So by the time I was about three or four, I, I was able to play tunes on the thing. And um my dad could play a lot more instruments than I did, but harmonica was was the thing to start off with. And so early influence, cowboy tunes, Davy Crockett, all of that. And then there was a bit of opera. There was a bit of um, uh, Mario Lanza, Glenn Miller, Elvis, a lot of stuff. And then the shadows came along. And that's where I first heard electric guitar. Um, um, and then I guess the rest is, is history. I mean, I, I took up, uh, electric guitar uh, you know about the age of uh, 14 and um uh, so that gradually took over from harmonica for me but i am still a big harmonica fan as it happens but but harmonica players in progressive rock are not are not well known if you know what i mean there's not a lot of um, prog harmonica going on but i'll change that one day 
Maybe you will. <laughs> well, you already changed it on the guitar front. I mean, I know like your your two handed tapping and that kind of stuff. I know Eddie Van Halen, Brian May, like several people have cited you as influences. At what age did you pick up? I mean, you're talking about how you picked up electric guitar, you know, when you were younger. But when did you start yes. developing the two two tap thing? Uh, well, that was 1971. In my first year with uh, with Genesis, um, I was trying to work out something to play on a track called Musical Box. Uh, uh, which came out on nursery crime. So I was using tapping on that to start off with. And then there was a track called The the Return of the Giant Hogweed on that same album. And that had a tapping intro to it. So uh, you got that. And, and very often with Genesis, what we would do would be, you know, Tony would have his electric piano put through a fuzz box and he would start sounding a bit like a guitar as well. So we would do these harmony tapping things together. And... Um, it was a rather beautiful sound. And um, so I'm, I'm, I, I'm very grateful to J.S. Bach who showed me the technique one day. You know, he was born in 1685, but I was trying to play a line from Toccata and Fugue one day. And I thought the easiest thing to do is to play it on one string. So, um, uh, of course there are guitar teams out there, you know, 20 or more guitarists all playing Toccata and Fugue, doing what that guy could do in one go on a keyboard. But uh, it ends up sounding remarkably like organ in the end. So you've got guitarists trying to sound like organists and uh, keyboard players trying to sound like guitarists. What can I tell you? <laughs> Funny how that works. <laughs> well, you mentioned, you know, the music box, which was off of that first album, Nursery Crime, 1971. Well, your first album with Genesis. Um, but remind, remind our listeners real quick um, how, how that you joining the band even came about. Wasn't it, didn't you place an ad in Melody Maker magazine in like 1970 and Peter Gabriel saw it? Uh, do, do you remember what your ad actual, you know, yeah. what did your ad say? <laughs> I do, yeah. Well, you know, I'd advertised for five years and then eventually I was getting tired of advertising myself as blues guitarist seeks work. And so over the years it morphed into something like guitarist writer seeks involvement with receptive musicians determined to strive beyond existing stagnant musical forms. And <laughs> do you so have that on memory was, or did I'll, you read that? <laughs> no, no, I do know it from memory. And wow. um, the funny thing was that um, Peter Gabriel realized I was either completely crazy or another idealist, you know, <laughs> you know, he was trying to sound a little bit like Winston Churchill does rock. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> we will strive to fight, you know, We'll fight them on the beaches, right. on the frets, on the stages and all the rest. So, yeah, he was as crazy as I was. And so we, we worked well together for a number of years. That is wild. All right. So then he responds and he was the perfect combo of, uh, I guess you were both crazy and idealistic, uh, as you yeah. said. Um, so it, just to remind everybody, though, it was so it's Peter Gabriel was the lead vocals at the time. Phil Collins, who would later become solo fame, he was on the drums. Tony Banks on the keys, yes. Mike Rutherford on bass. And you were in the lead guitar from, I guess, 71 to 77. You did six studio albums with them. Um, you already mentioned Nursery Crime, but tell me about the second one, Foxtrot in 72. That one was, um, is Supper's Ready? Is that still the band's longest recorded that, song? Uh, yeah, it, it's, it, it's the band's longest recorded song. Um, and I do an even longer version because I do a long guitar solo at the end of it. So um, I think the original is something in excess of 22 minutes and mine sometimes goes up to 25 minutes. Oh, yeah. Um, but, um, you know, that's what happens when you're having fun with guitars. Um, <laughs> I love doing this stuff live. It's great. Uh, Supper's Ready, in a way, was an idea that I, I had. Um, I wanted to do a long form thing with all that 
with all the bells and whistles so that there would be a kind of uh, a kind of either a musical continuum or, or a kind of odyssey musical odyssey for people to get lost in and come back to the same place at the end and um, with a recapitulation of a theme or two and so I guess it really borrows from classical music in that you know, long form program music is music that tells a story. And that's really what Genesis did with so many of our tunes back then. Wow, 22 to 25 minutes. It takes, I guess, supper, it takes a while for supper to be ready. <laughs> it's, it it's takes a, a, while, a while for, to prepare in the kitchen. <laughs> um, cool, cool. For a single. Yeah. yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, well, I know uh, you mentioned Firth the Fifth. That was on the next album. That was selling England by the Pound in 73. Indeed. I think that charted yeah. like number three in the UK, the album. And it had, you know, it had other hits yeah. like I Know What I Like in Your Wardrobe, etc. But tell me about your famous guitar solo in Firth the Fifth. Do you remember how you came up with that? Yeah, well, actually, the song's really written by Tony Banks. Um, and um, uh, the melody that he originally played us on on piano, um, Pete played it on flute as well. So you had piano and flute playing the melody, but I, I said, well, how about if I do it on guitar? And I, and I made it sound a little more sort of Eastern. There was something Indian about it or Eastern about the scale when you started to bend notes on it. And it's got a hint of Eric Satie about it. You know, French impressionist composer, turn of the century sort of stuff. So um, I thought, well, if we do it like this, and if we have Mellotron behind it and, and do it big, I think it will serve the melody much more than just doing it in this acoustic sort of way. So I've played it with all sorts of instruments over the years. Sometimes it's been a violinist taking the melody, sometimes a trumpet, sometimes flute and electric guitar. And I've done it with orchestras. I've done it in, in all sorts of ways, but it, it, it happens to be a really great piece of music i think that the verse is lovely as well so it's also got to work out for keyboard players um who stumble over trying to play that intro but um <laughs> but roger king does a great version of that every night so he he does it uh, tony um didn't want to uh, play that live you know back in the day he didn't have a grand piano to play it on uh, he tried to play it on an uh, rmi and it didn't really work so um but we we you know we're able to do that now. We're able to make the sound of grand pianos, um, even on electric gear, of course, because it's many years hence from then. And it's it's a firm favorite. It, it, it happens to be a beautiful melody, a wonderful verse, keyboard workout. And then this really long guitar solo that's about, you know, three minutes 30. So it's my longest guitar solo uh, from the days of Genesis probably your most famous from those genesis days and you wait real quick real quick before i move to the other albums you mentioned Mel the yeah. mellotron if there's any casual casual you know music fans on here that might not know the instrumentation explain what the mellotron is well the mellotron was originally um invented um to contain information it was a way of storing info so you've got a number of tapes that 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 um that respond um but very quickly it got turned into a musical instrument. So that along with the Chamberlain, um, the Beatles of course used it most famously on the introduction of Strawberry Fields, which always sounded like a really old organ or something like that, you know, when I first heard it. But um, I remember seeing King Crimson using a Mellotron live and, and Moody Blues. 
And it just sounded stunning live. And I just knew that I had to work with a band that had a Mellotron. So, of course, for my first six months with Genesis, we didn't have that. We just had the organ and piano. Um, and I, I thought, you know, we, we've got to get one of these things. And then fate intervened. And we heard that King Crimson were selling one of their Mellotrons. They seemed to have three of them because I think one of them had been destroyed by fire at, at one point. So they had Mellotrons coming out of their ears, you know. And um, <laughs> so we went down. I, I took Tony Banks down to meet Robert Fripp. And um, Tony just sort of fell in love with the Mellotron straight away. We bought it off them for a very fair price. This thing was painted, painted black. I think they called it the Black Bitch because it was always breaking down. <laughs> and um, so we inherited this thing, uh, which was wonderful when it when it deigned to sing. But there were times when it used to stick as well. And it would take four men on each corner, like pallbearers, to make it, to carry it anywhere. So um, um, they are, it's a wonderful machine, the, the double manual one, the, the, um, the Mark IIs, as, as they, they called it, the one that, that the Beatles used on, uh, on a few things. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It's still a great instrument. It's still wonderful. But, you know, what we do these days is I've taken the guts out of it and, and digitized it. And and, um, and sometimes we, we bypass that altogether because I did some work for Mellotron. I did some guitar stuff for them. And um, and so I got the, the Mellotron tapes of the of the strings before it goes through the Mellotron. So we've got the cleanest Mellotron strings in the business. I've made people very jealous with that. But you know, hey, well, it's cool. just one of the things we do. Thanks for walking me through that. That's that. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of, you know, shine a spotlight on the actual instrument since you helped pioneer it so much in that in the use of that. Um, yeah. All right. Well, then. So, OK, so then the next one wound up being Peter Gabriel's last with the group, Lamb, the Lamb that lies down on Broadway in 74. Um, why? Why? Remind it. Why exactly did he leave? Was it just to go solo or and do you think you could hear that on the record at all? Or, or was it like a good grand finale for him? <laughs> Um, well, I think that Pete never really believed in the idea of composition by committee. Um, he he wanted to write his own stuff. When you're in a band, it's very difficult. You know, you do have to compromise and you're doing bits of things. Um, you know, if, if everyone wants to write everything all the time, uh, you get phase cancellation and you get no band. Uh, the truth is some characters have to be more receptive and passive in order to allow um, other geniuses to, um, to do what they need to do. But I think that, you know, all bands are built on a, on a fault line to a degree. All bands break up. That's just the way it, the way it is, apart from the Stones. And I don't think anyone's allowed to leave or, 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 or Keith will probably kill them. So um, <laughs> he manages to keep that together. <laughs> uh, and, and that's great, but that, I think that's the only one where, where most of them are still alive and um, uh, most of them are still in the same band. But um, yeah, no, uh, we, we did some great things as, as Genesis. That, that was a lot of fun, but, but Pete was always headed towards a solo career um, and um, he left at the end of, of that album. I think you can hear you can hear the competition. You can hear the, the sort of... Um, the clash of horns in a way, you know, um, this this thing happening between Pete and, and Tony, you know, very busy keyboard passages, 
and and very busy lyrical passages. So that gives it the, the thrust that the album has. It gives it its sense of claustrophobia, the very crowded New York streets, very crowded arrangements. Um, and I don't know, it's it's almost more like a wrestling match than an album, I think, at, at times. But uh, there are those who love it and think it's the greatest thing ever. And, and I, who who would I, you know, I wouldn't dissuade them from that. I personally, I was closer in spirit to selling England by the pound, but there are some great moments on the land. Yeah, well, some, yes. Yeah, Most of think. which are mine, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, as of course, as you would say. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, sometimes that con that contention can can create great music too. But um, but yeah, uh, sorry, I'm not taking life seriously here. No, nor nor should. And what does it take your work seriously, but not your life, not yourself seriously, or something? <laughs> um, but uh, but it's funny how it works. So that yeah. So then Peter Gabriel is gone, and that allows Phil Collins to kind of bump up and you know singing lead vocals on a trick of the tail in 1976. Yeah. Um, yes. which is the opportunity he needed to flourish and become a household name. Did, did yep. you know, was, how much did that change the sound of Genesis on that album? And, you know, even, even broader, like, was he, could you, was he de destined to be a, a breakout superstar on his own? Like, could you tell at that point? Well, uh, the truth is uh, when I first joined Genesis, one of the first things I wrote uh, was with Phil uh, and it was for absent friends and he was the one who sang it, but his voice was, sufficiently similar to Peter that no one realized that Phil was doing it. Um, and then he was singing more for me on Selling England by the Pound and, um, you know, starting to set, step out. And I asked him on the first solo album I did to sing a track called Star of Sirius. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he had, had a great voice, no doubt about it. Um, but I don't think anyone realized at that time um, what a, a global superstar he was to become. Um, you know, first of all, he was a very busy um, a drummer with Genesis. And prior to that, he'd been um, a child actor and, and singer on the stage. Uh, Lionel Bart's Oliver, the musical on, on, on the West End stage. So um, because he had a theatrical background, his mother ran a stage school. And, um, and so I think he was, you know, sent down the mines at a very early age. You know, he was already working at, at the age of three, you see. These sort of, um, you remember when people used to knit with knitting patterns, it would be himself and his and his sister on the front with these Fairlile sweaters or whatever they were called. You know, um, so, you know, he, he, he'd he already been a veteran. By the time he joined Genesis, he'd been in service for a very long time. Very sweet guy, very talented, very driven, and um, had the ability to be able to write, you know, those sort of everyman type songs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm just racking my brain of in terms of drummers that went on to be big solo, you know, of their own. I I can't really think of more famous than Phil. Maybe I mean Dave Grohl, I guess, went from Nirvana into. But um, but yeah, like the drummer. That it's a, it's a really great success story. Um, and then the next one, of course, I guess let's let, let, just to round out all of your your Genesis work. Wind and Withering was in '76. That would be that would wind up being your last with Genesis. Um, I think it had its first uh, single. Your own special way was the first that charted in the U.S. I think, um, but but yeah, just memories of of your last record with them and 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 why you ultimately decided that was going to be your last one so you could go do your solo stuff. Uh, well, the truth is, I uh, I did a solo album when I was still part of the band, and, mm -hmm. and, and Mike and Mike and Phil were were on it. Um, the, well, the album started to take off in 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 the interim, you know, after Pete 
left and um, no one really knew what, what the band's future was going to be. Um, but um, uh, I, I think it's difficult, you know, when you have solo success, um, you know, uh, w within a band, uh, some people will feel that um, perhaps you aren't giving everything to the band that you should be. Uh, but the truth is, um, it's very difficult if you're not really a founder member of a band um it can be very difficult you know because you're always saying you know I've, I've got a song here you know would you like to do it and and you're very happy if they do whereas you know founder members it's like and my will will be done and um so it, it, it was kind of difficult so from then on I became very prolific as a songwriter um but um, I knew that um, I was being told, well, you know, either you can't do any more solo albums or you've got to leave the, or if you've got to leave the band. And I thought, well, you know, um, I'm being told that I'm, I'm an employee at this point, you know, having considered myself to be a full partner. Uh, I didn't want to be told what to do. Um, my allegiance is to music itself. It's so important, I think, that bands have an outlet so that people can go off and do separate albums because otherwise you're just a slave to some corporation. And uh, I don't work like that. So I am a free man, as the prisoner says, you know, Patrick <laughs> McGoon. Uh, I'm not a number, I am a free man, I'm a free agent. Uh, now I've got no problem with the Genesis music, absolutely loved the music and loved the work that we all did together. Sweated blood to write it with everybody and, and then tour it. So I did really give it everything I was allowed to do. And um, uh, and I'm very happy to play that stuff again live. Uh, but I'm ve I'm very happy that that I can do that stuff politics free, you know. Internal politics of bands just slows it down, and it, it, you end up that there is no there is no band at all in the end. You know, phase cancellation takes the place of of um, of communication. I'm sad to say, so many bands go this way, and then. Sometimes you can get reformations, but um, uh, so far that you know it hasn't really been the case since 1982. Last time I stepped uh, on the stage with them all, so I don't, that's never really going to happen. And Genesis are saying that these these are last concerts, and that's it. And then they hang up their spurs. Well, you know, I'm just getting going with this stuff because I want, you know, this I want these songs to be played live. I want them to be heard, and I wanted to do them. To a certain standard and style and i believe the band that i have does that more than justice oh yeah oh no doubt about it and i like how you've like you like for this show at the warner theater for instance i like how you've divided it into you know your solo stuff for the first half and then the genesis stuff for the second half it kind of reminds people that you have sort of that you sort of had a duality of your career there that you know there you 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 make your own great stuff what, what are you on like 20 Two dozen, 27 solo albums or something like What are you on now? Something like that. Yeah. I mean, wow. there have been many more, you know, if you count all, all the live ones. And I mean, I've lost count of the amount of albums <laughs> that I've shown up on of other people's. Um, but it, it must be hundreds by now. 
the body of work is just amazing. Well, I mean, it's imp- I know that's impossible to dig through 27 albums, but if there's if there's a listen if there's a listener that might be coming to the show just to hear the Genesis stuff, let's say they remembered the Genesis stuff, but don't know your solo stuff as well, hard to believe. If there's any of them listening, which which album or two or three are you most proud of out of those 27 that they should go back and you know if they if they want to if you want to distill what Steve Hackett's solo stuff is it, you know is all about what, what would you what album would you suggest they go pick up? Well, I think you know there's there's spectral mornings. Um, there's something about that. Those songs worked very well live, and I feature some of that still in in the, the live set. Um, there's also Surrender of Silence, the uh, the most recent album, which I'm I'm very fond of, uh, particularly the orchestral work that's on it. So um, you get orchestral metal. It's part of what I do. You know that thing about seeing a band live and and and, and thinking. Ooh, I think I'm watching an orchestra. I'm listening to an orchestra, but it's coming at me like sheet metal, you know, right. uh, that's fine. That's yeah. really, really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Devil's you... Cathedral. That's, that's Devil's stuff. Cathedral's yeah. another one. Yeah. Yeah. Devil's Cathedral is, is on Surrender of Silence, which is a firm live favorite. Awesome. Awesome. And then, you, I mean, you've just done so much. You, there was the super group stuff with Steve Howe, the guitarist from Yes, GTR. There's all your solo stuff. There's all the Genesis stuff. Um, and then I guess sort of as a, a career accolade, you get inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with Genesis in 2010. Um, you said, but you said you were the last on stage with them in 82. Does that, are you not counting? Yes. Like, do you mean, do you mean performing or did you not show up for the, the, the Rock Hall or how did that work? Oh, no, I did show up for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So, yes, we were on stage, but not performing. That was gotcha. to receive um, to receive the awards. Was it rewarding that they that you would get inducted? Because, you know, a lot of times band members, they come, they go, they have different lineups over the years. By that point, you'd been out of the band for decades. But was it was it affirmation to you? Like, yes, my my early pioneering stuff throughout the 70s formed genesis it, it it set them on the path to being this rock hall like what, what did what did that did that reaffirm it for you that you were the seminal genesis uh yeah absolutely it's it's great that the early work was celebrated in that way i think it's a great institution the rock and roll hall of fame there's no doubt about it i wish we had something like that in england but sadly um england has, has yet to discover rock and roll <laughs> well <laughs> they invented a lot of it <laughs> But, um, well, I know, I know, but we don't have any official kind of, you know, celebration of it quite in in that way where you guys do because you know you, you celebrate writers who are who who are who are no longer with us even, and that's that you know it, that's great. It's it's not about being a new face on the blocks, but I, I think all of those acts that get celebrated, it's about paying dues. So um, I had a wonderful time there uh, meeting people and. Um, Many people were younger, many people were older. Uh, it was it was great fun. It's been great. Thanks for making so much time. And in final seconds, I want I, I do want to ask one final thing, and you, it can be a one word answer if you want. Of all the Genesis stuff they did after you left, follow you, follow me. That's all. Invisible touch, throwing it away, into deep, land of confusion. Tonight, tonight, tonight. I can't dance, etc., etc., etc. Do you have a favorite song that Genesis did in your absence? Uh, let me see. Uh, I quite liked Abacap. I thought that was that was good. I liked it. Uh, I would have done a guitar solo on it, of course, or a harmonica solo. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us again, everyone. Steve Hackett, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, former lead guitarist of Genesis, coming to Warner Theater on April 13th. So get your tickets now. Thank you so much. You were great. Thank you, Jason. Thank you so much. All thank right. you. We'll see you at the Warner. Thank you. Thank you. Ciao. 
Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.